So I want you to go back to verse 20 of Matthew 5 and look at that verse that Ben just read for us. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't think of that verse through your 21st century minds. Try to the best of your ability to think like a first century Jew hearing these words. Okay? I'm going to read it one more time now. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There would have been gasps. You see, the the typical Jew in the first century, the common Jew, they all had a very high regard overall for the Pharisees and their righteousness. That was the mindset that they had. So to hear these words from Jesus would have been shocking from everyone's ears. Think about it. Jesus has just begun his ministry, so to speak, preaching the kingdom of heaven. And with the mindset that the average Jew would look at the Pharisees who took the law and they were so careful about the law itself that as you know, and I'm going to get into fence laws, they had those very things to ensure they would not break the law. That was the mindset and everyone thought, wow, amazing. Now, I don't know how many within the sect of Judaism were known as Pharisees. I have no idea how many thousands there were. It wasn't as if it was the greatest, quote-unquote, denomination of Judaism or sect of Judaism. There are a lot more that did not have any affiliation with the Pharisees or Sadducees or Essenes in the first century. They were just known as the common people. But to hear those words meant something. And so when you hear the words again from this standpoint, look at it from a first century point of view, and you get a sense. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of history. And there is some some haziness to the history of the origin of the Pharisees. This was starting um, during the days of the Maccabean Revolt, if that means anything to some of you, the Hasmoneans. Um, That's about the time frame when the Pharisees became known as a sect within Judaism. They were known as perishim, right? That was the Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word simply was from a standpoint of the path that one walks. That's what that means, the path that one walks. It it became known as the Jewish laws with regard to the halakha, okay? So you have this group of people. And in revolt to this Hellenization process that the Greeks were imposing upon those within their empire, including the Jews, came another sect called the Sadducees. And they were going right along with this Hellenization. But the Pharisees didn't want any part of it. They wanted to remain true to their roots before God. And so within this mindset of being separatists, and of course there is... There is some debate as to what that really meant, this being um, separates, separatists. They, they were so zealous for God 
that a number of them would fight their own Jewish brethren to death to ensure faithfulness to God. That's where you get that Maccabean revolt and the mindset that many had as a result of this group. Well, over those centuries before the time of Christ, you had something called the Halakha. And this Halakha had three parts to it. It consisted of the Torah, that is the written word of God from Genesis to Deuteronomy, right? The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And that was in addition to laws then that were instituted by the rabbis. So you would have these oral laws in addition to the written laws of the Torah. So you got the, the Torah, the written Torah. You have the oral Torah, which then was in written form known as the Mishnah. And then you have, in addition to these two laws, the customs. So Im- imagine this. You take the first five books of the Bible. That's the Torah. Then the oral Torah was the rabbi's commentary on what the Torah meant. And it included laws. And then you, you further add to that customs that would be regional, that some would do here but not necessarily over there. And so you have all kinds of laws. It has been generally accepted that there are over 600 individual commandments in the Torah. 613 by some counts. If you add to that the oral laws, and then you add to that the customs, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's more than 613. That's a lot. All of this was taken with high esteem. It was not frowned upon to add fence laws around the laws of God because every Jew wanted to be so careful as to not to break the law. No one looked at it as as legalistic in in the negative connotation that it has today, the term legalism, with that negative connotation. It was looked at in a very positive way. And so when you hear of these Pharisees that want to ensure that they would not break any part of God's word, they had all these laws, written, oral, and customary. Well, again, you go back to Matthew 5, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How does that sound as, as far as intimidation? It was very intimidating. How can anyone ever get into the pearly gates? I mean, the Pharisees are the righteous among the Jews. And we have to be more righteous than they? That's impossible. That's the mindset that Jesus was dealing with when he said these very words. Let me add some more to this with regard to those fence laws. Um, Because there's so many of them, um, we're going to just choose one, the Sabbath. And this is one small, tiny section of the whole Sabbath law, right? So in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, you know, keep the Sabbath, right, holy. No, No work on it. It's just a day of rest. That's what we were told. In Exodus 16, Exodus 20, Exodus um, 32, uh, you get the passages with regard to the laws teaching. And you may not be able to see all this, this writing here because it's really um, small, 
but I want you to just listen to these basic activities with regard to the Sabbath day. So the law is do no work on the Sabbath. And you can read, I think it's in Numbers 18 or 19 where a man was brought because he had been working on the Sabbath, brought before Moses. And then Moses went before God saying, you know, what do we do? And he was stoned to death for working on the Sabbath. Okay, so the mindset is no work on the Sabbath. So in addition to the Torah came the oral laws and the customary laws and included are some of these. There are basic activities that you would refrain from on the Sabbath, and that includes today, modern day, no writing, erasing, tearing, or business transactions, just like 2,000 years ago and further. Driving or riding in cars or other vehicles or shopping. No shopping on the Sabbath. No riding in a car on the Sabbath. No using the telephone on the Sabbath. No turning on or off anything which uses electricity. That includes opening your refrigerator. They would turn, they would actually, before the Sabbath would start, undo the bulb. And they're doing it today, by the way. Undo the bulbs for the refrigerator. No radios would be turned on or off. No television, no computer, no air conditioning, alarm clocks. There is no cooking, baking, or even kindling of a fire. There is no gardening and grass mowing. There's no doing the laundry. Now, the example that I was referring to. Lights which would be needed on Shabbat or on the Sabbath are turned on before. So if your light was on, you're not going to do any work, so you don't have to turn it off. Now you have lights. That was the quote-unquote loophole so that you can have electricity without using. You're not, turn, you're not doing any work to turn it off or on. And again, this is taken from a Hebrew site, by the way. Automatic timers would be used for lights and some appliances as they have been set before. So imagine that. You're not turning on the oven, but the oven might automatically turn on if you did not actually prepare it. This is the way, again, just quoting it from the website. The refrigerator may be used. It's running. But, again, we have to ensure that its use does not engender any of the forbidden Shabbat activities. Thus, the fridge light should be disconnected before Shabbat by unscrewing the bulb slightly, and a freezer whose fan is activated when the door is open may not be used. So it gives you a sense as to how important. This was everyday life for a Jew that wants to ensure they do not work on the Sabbath. Now, how many of you think that's kind of crazy and insane? Me too. But to the Jew, that's not. It's respecting the law. To the Jew, it's, if you do this, and if you can keep this, you will not break that. And that is Exodus 16, 23, no work on the Sabbath. So Jesus comes along again, and this is the mindset without the cars and refrigerated lights, electricity, and so on and so forth. Imagine this is the mindset for the Pharisees among the Jews. How is it possible that we could ever live up to this kind of burden? See, for them, it was not a matter of burden. It was a matter of level of righteousness. The thing is, when we look at Jesus and John the Baptist, 
there's not a single in all the gospel accounts. I'm not going outside. I'm just staying in the gospel and the words of Jesus or the gospel writers about the Pharisees. Not one positive statement. There, the best case would have been Matthew 5, verse 20, where your righteousness must exceed. Wow, look how good their righteousness is. It's got to be better than that. That's the closest to anything positive that was said about the Pharisees in the Gospels. You read in passages like Matthew 3, and I'm just sticking with Matthew because you'll go with the other Gospel accounts, same things. Called by John the Baptist as well as Jesus in Matthew 12, but John the Baptist in Matthew 3, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God which is to come? Imagine that. You've got all the Jews coming out from everywhere to be baptized by John, and here is this group of Pharisees, and when the group of Pharisees come, he calls them a brood of vipers. There's something in that time in which John the Baptist, by way of divine revelation, would have said that would have shocked, I believe, fellow Jews hearing this. Brood of vipers? These are the righteous. You go further... And we can read in Matthew chapter 9 as well as Matthew chapter 11. I want you to look at that passage in, in Matthew chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 13. And we get this concept of compassion. Remember again, Jesus is calling Matthew or Levi, a tax collector, who is hated by fellow Jews. Right? And Jesus is asking him to follow him. And Matthew does. Now in verse 11, the Pharisees, when they saw it, they saw Jesus having Matthew follow him, having this kind of fellowship, if you will. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, again, the Pharisees, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen as that first century Jew, when these Pharisees were the righteous. I didn't come to call the righteous. I want compassion. Not sacrifice. That's really what I'm seeking. And Jesus was showing compassion to this tax collector who received no compassion among his fellow Jews, let alone those who are righteous that sat in the place of Moses. So you have them that were lacking compassion. We see that they were known to have the traditions of men that they were condemned for and of which Jesus called them hip hypocrites in, in chapter 15, verse 7, and he called them blind guides in verse 14 of the same chapter. And you go further, and you see that by now, at this time, Jesus has been proclaiming the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the judgmental, uh, the lack of compassion by these Pharisees, and now these Pharisees hate Jesus. And so they want to trap him, so they test him along with the Sadducees. In addition to that, they sit as judges and they look, okay, you're not living the way a true Jew would. 
And again, they have all these laws and fence laws beyond what is what we call today the law of Moses. And not just being uh, hypocrites, but in chapter 23, the most scathing book of all the Bible in my understanding. You go to chapter 23 of Matthew, and woe to you Pharisees, over and over and over and over, with scathing rebuke, he calls them for their various forms of hypocrisy. It is a complete upside-down way of thinking for the fellow Jew to have formally been looking at these Pharisees as being so righteous to now seeing or being exposed for what they truly were. So it's interesting that how we as men might have um, reputations among men, but God lets us know our reputation before him. The common Jew was seeing the Pharisees for who they were before the eyes of God. Now, with that said, I want to let you know, that does not mean that all Pharisees were this way. Gamaliel, from the way we read in the book of Acts, was a godly man and a Pharisee. The apostle Paul loved God and regarded himself a Pharisee among Pharisees. It was still held in a good light in, in, in certain ways. But Jesus exposed the group per se for what they personified. There was a culture that the Pharisees imposed upon everyone else. As if that culture was equivalent to the commands of God. And that's why Jesus said, you hypocrites with your, your human traditions. And so this is the picture then in the Gospels by Jesus and by John the Baptist. Primarily Jesus. So... What about modern fence laws? Because we're not living in the first century, right? We're in the 21st century. So like the good Pharisees, I believe there's, a good, there's good intentions behind any individual with regard to how we are serving the laws. But like the good Pharisees, modern Pharisees may take principles, may take customs, if you will, to keep them from breaking what we consider to be laws in the New Testament. Do we not? One example was a brother in Christ who told me it is sinful for me to mow the lawn on Sunday. It's the Christian Sabbath. Now, this morning in our Bible class, I facetiously referred to first opinions. That's also there too. There is no Christian Sabbath. But because of the way we view Scripture... Every single thing is some kind of a commandment from God mindset that we somehow come up with things and we buy into them. I'll give you an, an illustration where I got raked over the coals for a sermon back in, in Georgia um, by some brethren. I had said in the sermon, dancing in and of itself is not sinful. That was the sermon. And I went through the whole thing and said, look where there was dancing. I mean, we, in fact, we're so, when I say we, I'm speaking generally among certain brethren, we're so uh, much against the dancing that it's equal to sin that it even influences our interpretation when we read of dancing in the Bible. Remember when David came home from victory 
and Micah was condemning him as he was dancing like the common people, there's your sin. He was dancing, and that's why she was upset. I've been told that. That had nothing to do with it. Her heart was evil against him because he humbled himself, as the scripture says, before God and being in the midst of the common people. She didn't like it. Not to say, in addition to that, some other things because of who she had previously been married to with King Saul. But anyway, to come back to the point, some have the mindset that dancing is sin. Well, you know what is sinful? Lasciviousness. And there are dances that are lascivious. Are there dances that are not lascivious, brethren? Yes, you better believe it. I've seen some of you dance here. Some of you, after a touchdown... <laughs> John's not the only one. Some of you, because I don't know, for whatever reason, you're just happy. Kids do it, they twirl around. It's a dance. There's nothing wrong with dancing in and of itself. But even years ago, when I gave the sermon, I have to tiptoe around the subject matter because you're so sensitive to brethren. Lasci- lasciviousness is sinful. Licentiousness is sinful. I mean, you can talk about the sins in and of itself, and it can manifest its way through dancing. But dancing in and of itself is not sinful. Now, interestingly enough, just as a parenthetical to this, as we are in preparation for this wedding of our daughters, my wife tells me, Something that she looks, I'm not going to say it now. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> She's like, oh. I'll, I'll get permission later on and see if that's okay. That'll bring in a future sermon. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. <laughs> going to the prom. Ever heard it said, or you've said it yourself, going to the prom is sinful. What is sinful about going to the prom? Dancing. Because dancing is sinful if that's the wine some have. It could be the drunkenness that goes on, the sneaking of alcohol, right? It could be all kinds of illicit activity associated with the prom. But does that make the prom in and of itself sinful? I will say no. There are people that have gone to it, not done a single sinful thing at all at the prom. I'll go further. When I soon became a Christian, and I wanted so much to share the gospel with everyone that I could, one of them was a friend of mine from a different island in Hawaii that I knew was living in Iowa, actually was wrestled for Dan Gable, and I wanted to share the gospel with him. The only place that he was at, and I'm on the road going back to Nebraska, on my way to Nebraska, it's past midnight, he worked at a bar. But I was told by some, going to the bar is sinful. I went to the bar to preach the gospel. The bar in and of itself, full of sin. You can be there for sinful reasons. You can be there. In other words, we can use wisdom and fence laws as saying, that's not a good place to go. And I would agree, not a good place to be. I'd rather myself, my family's not be at a bar. But it got to the point where not at the bar became not at the grocery store that sold alcohol back in the 1980s, late 80s. 
because there were brethren boycotting going to grocery stores that, that sold alcohol, and they would go to grocery stores that did not sell alcohol. Guess what? Now all the groceries sell alcohol, and we're all going to the grocery store. Gas stations that sold alcohol and cigarettes. You don't go to that gas station. I mean, it got to the point where I was looking at a gas station. Okay, nope, next gas station. That's where I was as a young Christian. The gas, there was nothing wrong with the gas station. Nothing wrong with the grocery store in and of itself. But we start adding these fence laws. And we have the same mindset. And again, the fence laws, there's nothing wrong with having those fence laws. Nothing wrong with saying, you, my child, will not go to the prom. You will not go to this dance because of all that is associated with it. And you, as a parent, you have that authority. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good thing. In many cases, it's a very good thing. Wisdom comes into play. So when we're talking about these modern-day Pharisees that have these kinds of fence laws today, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. In fact, if we're going to cure Phariseeism, let's get this straight. That we ourselves have fence laws that if we were to take the time and sit through them, every one of us in our lives have our own little fence laws so that we don't sin against God. That's a good mechanism to a certain extent. It can be a healthy thing to use wisdom to say, I don't want to, I don't want to get close to that line, right, that we use. I don't want to go down the slippery slope. And so we use those kinds of argumentations to keep from sinning in the first place. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But notice the caveats I have here. Keep them for yourself and your family, whatever fence laws that you have that you deem to be helpful or necessary to keep from sinning. Remember when Jesus was telling the disciples, you know, whatever those the Pharisees tell you to do, do them. But don't do as they practice. Their hypocrisy. They put heavy burdens upon you. He wasn't saying, well, then you shouldn't have those heavy burdens from per se, but it's the fact of what those heavy burdens were, that they would be justified through those burdens as if they would be righteous through that. That was not it. So in addition to keeping yourself and your family with regard to whatever fence laws you would have in your own family, as we do in ours, share your wisdom with ours if you believe it to be helpful to someone else. Share it knowing they don't necessarily have to believe or practice that fence law that you're sharing by way of wisdom and, and doing that wisdom or sharing that wisdom through love. I guarantee you it's one thing to say, you know what? Um, our, our family, we're not going to go to do this activity. You know, we're not going to send our kids to, um, to the dance. And, and someone says, well, why aren't you going to do that? That's so fun. The kids get to be together. We know what the environment is like. I remember, because before I was a Christian, I went to those dances. I remember what they were like. And then we share that wisdom with one another. And then the parents kind of play things back going, you know, okay, well, that's something to think about. Maybe we'll do the same thing. You know, we, we share that wisdom. But then to go beyond that and, and to say, you cannot have your child do this. You cannot go to the problem. If you do, we're going to withdraw from you. And there have been brethren that seem to send that very message. And it doesn't have to be on the dancing or the prom or anything like that. It could be on other things that are not in the word of God, but we've taken as if they are the word of God and imposed them. 
And so, when you get back to the very beginning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And not one jot or one tittle will pass away until all things are fulfilled. And you know what he fulfilled? He fulfilled dying on the cross for your sins and my sins. That's what he fulfilled. He did it perfectly, living sinless life and being that perfect sacrifice. And our brother Bill had just quoted out of Romans chapter 5, verses 11 following. You go back even further, and he was saying how we are justified. In other words, how we stand righteous before God. And we stand righteous before God as something greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. We stand righteous before God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ who we partook of this morning. You think about that, brethren. Your sins taken away, washed away through the blood of Christ. It's not an, a means by which you go out and live a sinful life. It is because it's been taken away that you've been justified before God and you've been called, therefore, to walk as he walked, holy and blameless. And that would mean that while you're justified or righteous before God through the blood of Jesus, the way you live your life is for the glory of God. And it may mean that by virtue of loving your children or raising them up, you have certain rules for them that are not necessarily explicitly written in God's word, but so that they do not fall into sexual morality or lying or cheating or, or sinning in any way. And that would be the same for as, as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Same thing. The problem with the Pharisees as they sat as judges were that they believed themselves justified before God through their own righteousness. That's called self-righteousness. And that was the sin the Pharisees were guilty of among others. So I want you to think about that this morning. You stand righteous, not because of your own righteousness, but because of Jesus's. But through him, you live to the best of your ability so as not to sin before God. Does that make sense? That's how you get cured of Phariseeism. And brethren, I've heard a number of us that saying, you know what? I've been guilty of that. I, Mitch Davis, has been guilty of it. I mean, I placed it upon my wife and my children as they were growing up and as we were young in our marriage. And it's all because I love God, not because I had some kind of desire against them, but I got to see it for what it was, the same things that I saw in that list that Jesus condemned. That's what I want you to see as well. Now, if you're here this morning, I want you to think about this. It's not because you're so good that you get to come into heaven through all your efforts and means. You are saying that you are a sinner and Jesus is dying in your stead because you are not good enough, you're not powerful enough to save yourself and to be with God in heaven. And you're not. That power and that authority belongs to Jesus Christ who died in your place. 
and that love that he has and the mercy that he has to die in your place was there for you so that now you can die in his likeness and raise up in newness of life. And so if you believe that he is the Christ and willing to repent, to turn away from the way you've been living and to submit to him and walk with him and to be baptized into Christ, to have those sins washed away, I'm asking, I'm begging you right now, take advantage of that. You have right now, today's the day of salvation. Take advantage of this day. If you're not walking worthy of the calling, think about those words from Jesus. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into heaven. Brethren, there either is no hope for us, or our hope is only found, and this is the point, in Jesus Christ. And you need to return to him. Not walk according to your own righteousness. That's your invitation right now. Stay together. Stand and sing.